Well, let's start out by talking about man. What are people? Where do they come from? Now, because of our time, I'm not going to be doing a lot of exposition in the scripture. One of the challenges of a course like this is that I'm, I have to say a lot of things about scripture without always going to the scriptures to actually lead you through the passages that state the things that I say scripture is stating. But I don't think you'll find anything difficult here to accept. If we were to read through Genesis 1 and 2, we would see a number of things. God created Adam and Eve by direct action. Okay, There's not a hint in Genesis 1 and 2 that Adam and Eve were the product of some long process of evolution or anything like that. They were created by God directly. As adults, absolutely. You're, you're ahead of me, but it's in it's in here, believe it or not. Okay, Genesis one states that they were created in God's image. Now we talked a little bit in the last hour about what that means. We'll talk more about that in a little while. Now Adam was made from the earth. God took a blob of mud and formed him and breathed life into him. Okay, he was given life by God directly. Eve was made from Adam for him. Okay? They were both directly created by God, but God used different materials. For the man, he used the earth, and for the woman, he used the rib. Okay, you know the joke about that? Let me see if I can get this right. Um, God creates Adam. And after Adam names all the animals, God says, it doesn't look like there's anybody here for you. What would you like to have? And Adam says, well, let me think about that. I'd like someone who's beautiful and intelligent and even-tempered and who will always be in a romantic mood when I am and who has a naturally submissive spirit and God says, well, that's going to cost you an arm and a leg. So Adam says, what can I get for a rib? You've heard that before, right? No? <laughs> okay. See, Clayton, you were, you were anticipating things, okay? Adam and Eve were made in adult form already possessing language and the ability to think intelligently. And so if anybody asks you what came first, the chicken or the egg, if what God did with Adam and Eve is any indication, the chicken came first. <laughs> That's a good question. Did they have belly buttons? I, I, I suspect they did. I suspect that they did. Because they were created in complete adult form, and the kids that they produced had belly buttons. Okay, So they had the ability, they passed on their nature. Now, I can't prove that they had belly buttons. Okay, But at least, let me say that at least this. 
they had the genetic design in them so that their children were nourished through an umbilical cord which produced a belly button. Beyond that... There you go. Pose. That's a great picture. Okay. All right, now, this, this next one is important. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, there's that statement in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. I think that that is basically a statement of God's pattern for human society and the family being the building block of human society. All these things, by the way, are pre-fall, aren't they? They have nothing to do with, with sin entering the world. Okay. Now notice, if you look at this sequence of events, it precludes the idea of biological evolution. Okay. I, I know that there are Christians who try to reconcile Darwinism with what the Bible teaches, but a sound understanding of what Scripture teaches, and in particular what we're going to see about the headship of Adam over the human race, will show that the idea of evolution just doesn't fit what the Scriptures teach. It not only doesn't fit the details of the creation account, but the idea of Darwinism completely undermines the headship of Adam over the race, which is necessary for Christ to be our Savior. And you'll see how that works out as we go through the course. Okay? It also precludes the idea that human language was invented by men. Okay? People didn't figure out how to talk. Adam and Eve were born programmed with language. Now, language is developed as time went on, and a lot of that happened when? Tower of Babel. Okay? God programmed people with a whole bunch of different languages. But language is not a human invention. And it's interesting. There have been some case studies of children who have been left in total isolation from other human beings as they developed. Not only did they not learn how to speak, but their brains didn't develop properly. The use of language and the interaction with speaking people is necessary for the proper development of the human brain, which is a very interesting thing. Okay, let's talk about the nature of man before the fall. And again, a lot of this is going to be obvious, but it's important to say it. Okay? Man is obviously a created being. Now, secondly, man bears the image of God. And the way I like to look at this, this is not the way everybody looks at it, but a lot do. There is the substantial image of God, what we are, and there's the functional image of God, what we do. Okay? Now I'm going to show you a picture which is a very feeble attempt at drawing from about 15 years ago when computers were rather crude. And I had some problem with the colors. You know, I've got gray rabbits and green sheep and gray trees. Anyway, yeah, that's. I, I drew that myself on the computer. Yeah, it's a sheep. And the rabbits are kind of scary looking. They have big teeth. Okay, but what what I was trying to express in here, okay, 
is that in the creation mandate, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and exercise dominion over it, okay? God was really telling Adam and Eve that they had a job, and in the carrying out of that job, they are reflecting the image of God, okay? Adam and Eve relate to each other. There we've got relationships. Adam and Eve create children, and they would go on and they would create culture. You know, they would build houses and make things, musical instruments, art, um, science, mathematics, all the things that human culture involves. That involves creativity. And they would exercise dominion. They were to rule over the animals. They were to take charge of the earth, beautify it, um, you know, I, I like to think of them teaching the dolphins to swim in formation. They never got that far. But we may someday. Okay? Now, it's interesting to me that you can see all of these qualities in God. Right? Within the Trinity, is there not relationship? Okay? And very interestingly... If there were not three persons in the Trinity, you could not have all the relationships that exist. All the relationships that ex exist are me to myself, me to you, and us to him or her, as the case may be. Every relationship is one of those categories, right? And with three people in the Trinity, you can have all of those relationships. And God had all of those relationships before he ever created anything. That's an interesting thought. It's an interesting argument for God being Trinitarian at his very nature. Okay? God has always been the ruler. Now, you would say, how did God exercise dominion before he created? Well, I would argue that in the very plan to create and putting forward the plan not only to, to create, but the plan to redeem the fallen human race, which God knew would fall. God was exercising dominion. Okay? He was making plans and preparing to carry them out. And obviously God is a creator, is he not? I mean, nobody is more creative than God. And as Belen has pointed out, God creates from nothing. Okay? So I would argue that the functional image of God and man is that we create, we relate, and we dominate. Now, that word dominate has a negative connotation in our popular culture, but I like to use it because it sounds like create and relate. <laughs> Pat, did you, did you have a... a no, no, I was just... Uh, I was agreeing. Okay. Okay. All right, now back to the previous slide. <clears throat> what we just saw is the functional image, okay? The substantial image, or some would call it the essential image, is what God is that we are, okay? This is what God does that we do. This is what God is that we are. God is a being with intellect, emotion, and will, you know? He thinks, he feels, and he chooses and acts, okay? So, God thinks, he emotes and he chooses, and God creates, relates, and dominates. 
I think those are the ways, or at least that's a very good way of looking at the image of God and man. And now this leads to a very interesting thought. We're still pre-fall, okay? But one of the reasons that God hates sin is that when we sin, we project a false image of God, and guess what? That makes him look bad, okay? Human beings are supposed to be an advertisement for God. But we advertise false things, right? You know, if you hire an advertising company to advertise your product, you know, and your product is, you know, the best widget ever made, and they put up a sign and they say, well, this isn't the best widget ever made. It's really pretty crummy, and it'll break after three days. Don't buy it, okay? You're going to be mad at the advertiser, right? Well, that's what sin is doing to God. We project a marred image of God and bring shame to his name when we were created to broadcast his nature to the watching universe. Okay. Any questions on the image of God? All right, let's talk about man's constitution. There are basically three views on the constitution of man. The bipartite view says that man has a spiritual component and a physical component, usually called the body and the soul. All right? The tripartite view says that man has a soul, a spirit, and a body. And that view is basically breaking up the spiritual component of man or the non-physical component into two parts, soul and spirit. Okay? There are some verses in scripture that seem to suggest that. All right? There's another view called monism, and this is different than the monism that we saw in the last hour. The uh, terminology gets reused, unfortunately. Okay? The monism view says that it doesn't make sense to even separate the idea of the physical and the spiritual in man. Well, you can't hold this biblically. Okay? Because we know that when we die, we leave our bodies behind, but our eternal spirits continue to exist. So this idea doesn't make sense. Now, people have been arguing about these two for centuries. I don't think the argument is very important, quite frankly. Scripture does talk about the soul and the spirit, and at, at times that seems to be the description of our non-physical part. At other times, the word soul seems to include everything in the non-physical part. I think basically what we need to keep in mind is that there's a physical part and a non-physical part, and sometimes it's referred to with different terminology, and just leave it like that, okay? Um, there are some kinds of um, <coughs> modern sort of pop Christian psychology that like to play games and distinguish between the soul and the spirit and say that the spirit is sinless and the soul is where sin lives. I think that's very dangerous thinking, and I don't think it stands up to Scripture. But basically, man is a bipartite being in which the non-spiritual part can be described in a number of different ways. And I would leave it at that. Okay? All right. Fourth thing. Man has a special relationship to the creation and a special role. Now, we just looked at the uh, at Genesis 
1, 26 to 28, the creation mandate, let's just look very quickly at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. There's a very interesting statement here. And it's part of a long, complicated statement. Let's start with verse 8. This is Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all people see... Now, that word people shouldn't be there. It's just to make everyone see what is the fellowship or the administration of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now here's the key. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay? What are principalities and powers in the heavenly places? Anybody know? Yeah. Yeah. Fallen angels. Now, it might include the holy angels as well. Mm-hmm. But that those terms are usually used for fallen angels. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the church, which consists of fallen people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, that the church exists to make God's wisdom visible to Satan and his demons. Now, people will sometimes ask, man bears the image of God, but who's watching? The only person who's watching is God. Well, that's not true. There's a whole invisible universe full of angelic beings, some of whom rebelled against God and some of whom have stayed faithful to God. And you go to Ephesians 3.10 and you find out who's watching. And you can see what's at stake. And it's very interesting. In Ephesians, at, at that point in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us what the purpose of the church is. In the second part of Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that the church will fulfill its purpose. And for the rest of the book, he tells what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of the church is to demonstrate through unity of the body the manifold wisdom of God. That's what the church is for. That's why God keeps us on earth after he saves us. And we become a proper advertisement for the nature of God as God takes the marred image of him, which is in us as unredeemed sinners, and begins to clean it up. So as we live more and more godly lives, what do we do? We more accurately reflect the nature of God to the watching world of unsaved people and the invisible watching world, you know, there may be a demon sitting right up here watching us right now. I'm not joking. Could be. He may be sitting behind you when you're sitting at your computer looking at what's on the screen. There's a scary thought. Okay. Last thing. Man is below the angels in some sense You know, most of you have been here for Bob's series on Hebrews, and we saw in chapter 2 that there's an argument there that man is below the angels. But very interestingly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, says that one day we will do what with the angels? We will judge them, 
right? So we are below the angels in some sense now. In the future, in our completely redeemed, resurrected, eternally saved, sinless condition, we may exercise some authority over them. Okay, that's an interesting thought. Okay. All right, we've seen that already. Okay, let's talk about the fall. Now, the fall is just as much a, fa as much a fact of history as Genesis 1 and 2 are. It's not a fable. It's a fact of history. Now, again, I'm going to try to summarize here the events that took place in Genesis chapter 3. And if you feel a necessity of looking at the text for me to support any of these, please ask me to do so. Okay? Satan took the initiative in tempting Eve. Okay? He comes into the garden. He wasn't invited in. He questioned God's command. He denied the truth of God's words. And finally, he impugned God's motives. Okay? He starts out with a question. And he says that God is lying. And then he says that God is trying to cheat you of something that is good. You notice the progression? Okay. Then, what happened? Eve, not Adam, was tempted by Satan. That in itself is quite fascinating. Okay? Now, Eve seems to have been confused or misinformed regarding the nature of God. She was at least confused regarding what God had said because she said God told us not even to touch the fruit and God had never said that. Now, maybe she got that from Adam. Maybe Adam said, Eve, God told us not to eat this and I don't want you to even touch it. I don't know. Maybe. We don't know. But she seems to have been taken in by what Satan was saying. Now, Eve recognized three tempting aspects of the fruit. It, she said it was beautiful, it was desirable to eat, and it offered the promise of the knowledge of good and evil. And she was deceived. Now, here's where it gets really ugly. Adam was with her during the temptation. If you read the account, he's standing there listening the whole time. And he's not saying, Eve, you get over here. Don't listen to that guy. What he's saying isn't true. He just listens, she eats the fruit, hands it to him, and he eats it. Now, what God says is, you listen to your wife instead of listening to me. And that's very, very serious. Adam is the one who is held responsible for the fall of the human race, isn't he? Scripture doesn't say that Eve is responsible. Now, there were consequences for Eve as well as there were for Adam. But Adam is the one who's held responsible. Okay, now let's look at the consequences and we'll think through what we just saw a little bit as we do this. Okay, the first consequence is that they felt guilt and shame, right? What did they do? They went and hid. Okay? Now, they had never felt shame before God, and they had never felt shame at being naked, but now they did. Now, they passed the buck, okay? 
Genesis 3 would be absolutely hilarious, hilarious if it wasn't so tragic. Okay? God comes in and he says... <coughs> To Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you you should not eat? And the man said, the, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Well, yeah, perhaps, perhaps the woman whom you gave me, yeah. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And Eve said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now notice something here. When Satan came in, Satan took the form of an animal. Okay? Where were the animals in the hierarchy that God had established? They're at the bottom. Satan comes in, he slithers in. Who does he talk to? Does he go to the head man? No, he goes to Eve. Because Eve is under Adam in the hierarchy that God has instituted. And then Eve sins, and she leads Adam into it, okay? In the fall, the entire hierarchy that God had established was turned upside down, okay? And Satan did it that way on purpose. He refused to recognize the system of, of authority that God had instituted. Then when God comes in, who does he talk to first? He talks to Adam. He goes to the top. Then Adam passes the buck to Eve, then he talks to Eve, then Eve passes the buck to the snake, and then he talks to the snake. See, God comes in and he respects the system of hierarchy that he had established. It's very subtle, but I think it's very significant. That's why I say Adam and Eve passed the buck in the wrong order when they were questioned by God. Adam should have said, I screwed up and left it there, but obviously he didn't. Okay. Now, God, again, pronounces judgments and curses. And then God promises a deliverer from the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That verse, Genesis 3.15, is called by theologians the proto-evangelum. We'll probably use this, this term a lot. Proto-evangelism, evangelum, means first gospel. The proto-evangelum. This is the first statement of God's intent to redeem fallen humanity. It is Genesis 3.15. And it anticipates, although it does not give all the details, the work of Christ, doesn't it? Okay? And notice, very interestingly, it doesn't say the seed of man. It says the seed of woman. And you can see how that fits in perfectly with the virgin birth, doesn't it? It's quite fascinating. Okay. Now, Adam then acts in faith. Okay? If you look at verse 20 of Genesis 3... It says, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, what's fascinating about that is that God has told them they're going to die. And Adam, who hasn't even had a child left, calls his wife living. 
I don't think he was being, I don't think he was arguing with God at all. I think he was expressing his confidence that Eve would produce children and that life would be restored to the race in an ultimate sense. And then God, then God acts in grace. Do you remember what God did? He did two things. Okay. Okay, he covered them with animal skins and presumably in the process of preparing those skins, he did what? Yeah, he killed an animal and they probably saw the horror of death and spurting blood and all that kind of stuff for the first time. And then God does one other thing. Remember what it is? Okay. He guards the gate. Give me more, Tommy. You're right on target. Okay, so they can't get back into the Garden of Eden so that they won't do what? Okay, they won't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Okay, the tree of life. Now, we're not told exactly why, but I think it's pretty obvious. God doesn't want them to become eternally stuck in the condition of sinners. Now, what is, what is really fascinating, and what we're going to see in this course, is that the reality of death is actually essential for God to do his saving work for the human race. Okay? And we'll see how that works. Okay, well, those are the immediate consequences of the fall. Now, there are global consequences of the fall. All right? Well, before we do that, let's just very quickly look at the penalties or curses placed on Adam and Eve. I don't want to skip over that. Verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. A lot of your Bibles say your sorrow in conception. I think it's your sorrow and your conception, and I think that's a reference to infant mortality myself. Uh, it's a curse. It, it, it's a judgment. I really believe it's a judgment. Well, the word curse isn't used here. At least I'm not, I don't think it is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I don't think the exact word curse is used, but it's a judgment. Okay. It's a penalty. It's it's something that hurts. There's some people who don't like to use the word curse. They say that God doesn't curse people, but I think there are places where Scripture clearly states that he does. Okay? Um, and he says, In pain you shall bring forth children. Now again, it may well be that the pain of childbirth is part of the consequence of the fall, but I think what's in view here is infant mortality, more than physical pain. And then there's the statement, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I'm going to go through this really quickly. Okay? This is not saying that a woman's sexual desire for her husband is a form of bondage or is a penalty or anything like that. That word desire is used in the next chapter in God's discussion with Cain when God says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires you. And it's, it has to do with the desire to usurp authority or to take control. Okay? 
part of the curse or the penalty, whatever you want to call it on women, is that they have an innate dissatisfaction with the position of being under the headship of men. Okay? Now there's a flip side to that we're going to see in a minute. He turns to Adam. He says, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Now make sure you contrast that with the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden had nice fruit trees. They're kicked out of it, and now they've got to eat vegetables and grains and things like that. It's going to be a lot harder to make a living. He says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And that's a reference to what? To, to physical death. Okay? Now the flip side of the penalty on woman where she has an innate tendency to be dissatisfied with male headship is the fact that the man who is responsible for providing the family is going to have a hard time doing it because the, wor the world is a hard place to make a living. And those two things go together. Woman looks at the man and he's struggling to make a living and she says, you dummy, I can do it better. And sometimes she can. And, and it sets up this battle of the sexes. Okay? And modern feminism is nothing but one form of the outworking of this. It really is. Okay? And it's fascinating. If you study this passage and think about the dynamics, you can come up with a very interesting theology of how to, how to take the instructions that are given in Ephesians chapter 5 on how men and women should relate and use those to deal with the consequences of the fall. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Women, respect your, husband, your husbands and husbands love your wives. Genesis 3 says that women tend not to respect their husbands. Genesis 3 says that men are so busy trying to make a living that they don't give their wives much attention. Okay, it's right there. When Paul says, wives, respect your husbands, husbands, love your wives, he's saying you need to consciously compensate for the penalties that were placed on the race at the fall. Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's go on. Global consequences of the fall. Okay, There were actual consequences of the fall and legal consequences of the fall. That's how we're going to break these down. Okay? Yes, Becca. Sure. Before you go on. I might even have an answer. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay. When you say that God doesn't want, God doesn't let them back into the near the tree of life because He doesn't want them to be permanently fixed in their fallen state. Uh huh. Okay. <coughs> so by the word permanently, there you mean. <coughs> I'm having a hard time with that. Okay. We are permanently in a fallen state until well, we accept Jesus as a Savior. Well, okay. So and, and that's going to require, for us to get where God wants us to be, mm -hmm. it's going to require us to shed these bodies, right. okay, and to leave behind the sin nature, right. 
and to be resurrected and to become like Christ in all of his qualities. Now, if they had stayed in the garden and if they'd just continued to eat the fruit, of the, the fruit of the tree of life, death would not have been a reality for them. And the means of shedding the body, and, and I'm not saying that the body is the source of our sin, but it's associated with the body in some way, that wouldn't have happened, and the process by which we go through death to resurrection would presumably not have occurred. Okay, thank you. Okay? Some of that is speculation, but I think it's reasonable speculation. Pat? Tommy? Okay. All right. Actual consequences of the fall. Now, some of this, I'm just (coughs) setting some stuff out, and we'll prove this as we go on. The first one is that the entire race becomes sinners. Okay? The descendants of Adam and Eve are going to become sinful sinners. That has to do with our constitution what we are, constitution and depravity, and it's going to have to do with what we do, too. Okay? The curse comes on the earth and death comes to the race. We've seen that already. And the will of man comes into bondage to sin. Okay? Some of you may have heard of or read the book by Martin Luther called The Bondage of the Will. And in that book, he basically argues that human beings can't not sin. Okay? And that idea that we're unable not to sin was very radical in contrast to Roman Catholic theology, which basically argued that it is possible for a person to live a life without sin if they just try hard enough. Okay? Now, legal consequences of the fall... The entire race becomes guilty before God. Now, we'll have to prove this later, but Scripture teaches that because Adam sinned, we are guilty. And when you hear that the first time, you say, wait a minute, that's the most raw deal I ever heard. But you will see that it's not a raw deal at all. Okay. Second, the entire race comes under the wrath of God, condemnation. Adam's guilt is imputed to us. The result of that guilt is God's condemnation. He judges us worthy of punishment. And the entire race becomes subject to death. Now we know that at least as far as physical death is concerned, we inherit a dying nature from Adam and Eve, right? You know, modern medicine will say the moment a child is born, it begins to die, don't they? the irreversible processes of aging start, you know, and and you can't get around them. You know, facelifts and going to the workout club just won't do it long term, okay? Let's go a little farther into these. Okay, the first consequence of the fall is called total depravity. Okay, the fall caused actual changes in Adam and Eve that they passed on to us. Now, if you go to Romans 5.19, it says that we were made sinners because of Adam's sin. Now, I, I take that as saying that what happened to Adam <clears throat> caused a change in his nature that he passes on to us. As a result of his act of sin, God made him into a sinner. Okay? Now, make sure you get this. 
It's not just history. Okay? It's not just that Adam sinned once and that he could have continued on without ever sinning again. As a result of that act of sin, I believe God changed his nature. Okay? And his nature became sinner. So that Adam sins because he is a sinner. And we sin because we are sinners. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. Sinning is evidence that we are sinners. Or to put it another way, when your cute little baby pops out of the womb, he's not innocent. It's not that you wait until he sins the first time and now he's a sinner. He's a sinner from the moment of his conception. So, if sinning is evidence that we are sinners, uh-huh. then can't we say that Adam and Eve were sinners to begin with? Well, no. If your logic carries through? Well, okay. They're an interesting case. Okay, Adam and Eve were created apparently in a state of moral neutrality. Okay? They had the capability to sin. Um, Some theologians would argue that it was possible for them not to sin. I don't think that that is true. But they were created innocent. And none of us were ever created innocent. Okay? I would argue that their state was neutral. And when they sinned, God changed their nature. To me, that's the only way to make sense of the evidence. Because they pass on that nature to us. Okay? They, they don't pass on an innocent nature to us after which each of us falls into sin. There's only one fall is really what I'm trying to say. Okay? Now, Dr. Pentecost, whom some of you have heard preach, describes total depravity like this. He says, The doctrine of depravity has to do not with man's estimation of man, but with God's estimation of man. The creature is measured by the creator and is found wanting. Okay? This is not about me looking at you and saying, you're a really good person, which may well be true by my standards, but it's not true by God's standards. Okay? So in other words, although our behavior is not as bad as it could be, our standing before God is as bad as it could be. Right? We can't get any worse off. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that there aren't varying degrees of judgment or varying degrees of guilt. I think Hitler is guilty of things that I'm not guilty of. But as far as whether I could stand before God without the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and get into heaven any more easily than Hitler could, the answer is it wouldn't be any more easy for me. Right? We're both just as bad off as the other. Now, we're not going to get through my material tonight, but give me about five more minutes, okay? All right, actual consequence number two, death. Okay, death came to the race through Adam and Eve. You know, when God said, in the day that you eat of this, you will die, it was true. It was true. The problem was that Adam and Eve didn't understand what death meant. Okay? Or maybe the prop, maybe they understood, but we don't. Okay, the biblical concept of death is separation. The three ways that the Bible uses the term death, and they all involve separation. Okay, spiritual death is separation from God. Ephesians two one says, 
you were born dead in your sins and trespasses. Basically, that means God has a cell phone on the other end and you don't have one and there's no way you can talk to him. You can't have fellowship with him. You don't have the means, you don't have the privilege. Okay? Because you are completely alienated from God, he wants nothing to do with you on a personal basis until you deal with your sin problem through faith in him. Okay. Physical death is the separation of the soul slash spirit from the body. In each case, it's separation. Okay? We tend to think of death as annihilation, but it's not annihilation. It's not even cessation. Death in the scriptural sense is separation. The third form of death, which we'll see later, is what the Bible calls the second death. Now, it's strange, but the third kind of death is the second death. Okay, I could move this up, I suppose, but um, the second death is the permanent condition of spiritual separation from God. Okay, when you are born until the day comes that you die, there is always the possibility that God will rescue you from spiritual death, that he will regenerate you through your response to him in faith. Okay? Spiritual death is reversible. Okay? Physical death is reversible, or more importantly, it's conquerable. Okay? Resurrection is more than reversal of spiritual death, isn't it? Lazarus had spiritual death reversed, but you know what? He grew old and died again. Okay? Resurrection goes beyond it. So... We re God really does more than reverse physical death. It's those who die unsaved who will stand one day before the great white throne judgment and they will be cast into the lake of fire and then the spiritual death which with, with which they were born becomes permanent and they will be eternally separated from fellowship with God. So those are the three kinds of death. So were you thinking something? Oh, you're obviously thinking. Did you have a question? Okay, um, this is a really important concept, okay? This is one of the places where our sort of secular thinking really pollutes our theological thinking. If you learn to think of death as separation, a lot of things that don't seem to make sense begin to make sense, okay? And, and we'll cover this at one point. But scripture actually says that everybody is going to be resurrected, not just believers. Okay? Even unbelievers will be resurrected. But in their resurrected state, they will be cast into the lake of fire. And does that mean that their resurrection bodies are made out of asbestos? I don't know. But in those resurrection bodies, they're going to be in the lake of fire for eternity. Clayton. Yes, it, it, it did theologically, okay? It occurred at the fall in the sense that, and we'll get to this next week a little bit, Scripture says essentially that we were in Adam when he sinned, okay? And that's why we are born... That's why we are born... We are born as depraved as him, as condemned as him, as sinful as him. So, you know, you... 
we are born dead in the spiritual sense. Okay, everybody comes into the world alienated from God and condemned. But through Christ, this condition can be reversed or remedied would probably be a better way to put it. Okay? Now, I always think it's strange when evangelists talk to unbelievers and they say, come back to God. Because they never were with God. You know that? I never say that. Because I think it's confusing. It almost gives them the idea that once, before they had sinned, they were okay. Then they got in trouble and God is inviting them back in. They never were okay with God. You know, we all start out depraved, sinful, condemned, spiritually dead, physically dying. And it's pretty ugly how it starts, but it's pretty wonderful what the Lord will do with, do for us through Christ. You're okay. not going to get into mortality right now. Not right now. Okay. Any other questions? I'm not going to go any further. I've got a lot more material, but it's getting late. Questions? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given to us tonight. Thank you again that you have revealed so much to us. Father, some of these things are very straightforward and easy to understand. Some of them are very profound and very deep and hard to understand. I ask that you might give us patience with those things that are difficult to understand and that you'd enable us to rejoice in the things that are clear and the blessings that you have placed in our hands and that you have promised to us. Please bring each of us home safely tonight. Grant us peaceful rest and strength for tomorrow and the will and the ability through your spirit to walk with you. Amen.